You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Hello, everyone. This is Greg Stokes with Stokes Family Office. I'm here with my brother, Doug. We are on Lanyap Podcast. Today's itinerary is going to go through a variety of different subjects. Number one being the midterm elections. This is an article from 538, the statistical blog from January 5th of 2022. Some early clues about how the midterms will go. To state the obvious, a lot is at stake in November. The 2022 midterm elections will not only decide control of both the U.S. House and Senate, but also who sits behind the governor's desk in 36 out of the nation's 50 states. History tells us that midterm elections generally go well for the party that's not in the White House. But how can we tell whether that's shaping up to happen again this cycle? As we inch closer to Election Day, there are four big indicators you can watch to give you an idea of which way the political winds are blowing. Biden's approval rating. The first number to keep an eye on is Biden's approval rating. Since World War II, there's been a decent relationship between the president's average net approval rating, approval rating minus disapproval rating, on the day of the midterm elections and how many seats his party has lost in the House of Representatives. Since World War II, presidents with net approval ratings better than plus 30% Percentage points on a midterms election day have lost an average of only three House seats. Meanwhile, presidents with net approval ratings between plus five and plus 30 points on election day have lost an average of 24 seats. And presidents whose net popularity was worse than plus five points, including every president since 2006, have lost an average of 39 seats. So as it stands right now, Biden's net approval rating is negative 8%. So according to statistical data, and obviously who knows what's going to happen between now and election day, but the statistical likelihood if the president's approval ratings hold, there's probably going to be a significant amount of seats that are lost by the Democrats in the midterm elections in the House. It's interesting to me, I found it interesting reading this article, and that even when you have a president who is popular, extremely popular, the party in control, the president's party, has lost seats. What do you think about that, Doug? So I just want to clarify, you said negative approval rating, negative 8%. So basically, that would be a 42% approved, 50% disapproved. That's that difference you're talking about or something like that. Exactly. So what's happened is on the the net approval rating, Biden had a 53% approval rating when he won the election, and then that subsequently dropped by eight points. Yeah, I saw there was like a Quinnipiac poll that came out last week where he was like 33% approval. I mean, there's a lot of variation in these numbers and anything can happen between now and midterms. But another interesting statistic, and I think that this is probably some sort of reading of the tea leaves from the Democratic side, but there's 28 representatives, Democratic representatives that are retiring at the end of this term and not seeking reelection. So I think it's pretty typical, as you just laid out, that generally speaking, the president's party is, loses control at midterms and just generally loses some sort of support at midterms. And that's the beauty of the American system, right, is that there's always ebbs and flows between one party or another or one prevailing ideology or another in control. So 
not that it's a good or a bad thing politically and not trying to make a political statement, but generally a moderation between one party or the other is good in my opinion. I agree with that. The current breakdown in the House right now is there's 222 Democrats and 212 Republicans. So it is a very tight split and there very likely could be a flip in the House depending upon what happens in the midterms. The Senate is 50-50 as it stands right now. And there are a lot of Senate seats that are going to be contested. There's one in Louisiana, right? Is it just one? I believe it's just one in Louisiana. I know that there's going to be one in Georgia because that was like a vacated seat that had a short term, even though there are two senatorial elections in Georgia with the previous presidential cycle. So there are a lot of important seats out there. And Senate is split 50-50 and one single seat can flip that. And then likewise with the House. So it'll be interesting to see. So right now, the Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the presidency. But as far as how the markets have performed in a split government or one party where there's not like singular control between one single party, Doug, you've got some statistics on that. How does it all translate when there's gridlock in the legislature and the presidency? Well, I think a relevant quote or at least observation, I think Ken Fisher made this observation who runs a big a wealth management firm. But he said, and I was listening to him speak one time, and he said that markets, they hate rising uncertainty and love falling uncertainty. And he was relating that to the political makeup in Washington and specifically around split Congresses. And the reason he was saying that the markets love falling uncertainty and as it relates to split Congresses is because when you have a split Congress, Generally, that means nothing's going to be able to get done in Washington because no real controversial bill will get passed from either side. It'll just get get held up. And so what he was saying is basically markets understand that because they can say, look, anything that's going to be major and economically impactful won't make it through because we have a split Congress and because one side or the other won't approve of legislation that's going to be a major impact. And so And then he went and looked at some data. I don't have this data from Fisher, but I pulled it from somewhere else. I think this is from LPL that basically shows, you know, Republican Congress, Democratic Congress, split Congress. And then you can throw in there Republican president and Democratic president because that's also impactful because of veto power. But in a split Congress, this is since 1957, the S&P's average return, S&P 500 average return since 1957 in split Congress, 17.2% through June 30th of 2020. When it's a Democratic-run Congress, it's 10.7% average annualized return. Not bad on average. And when it's Republican, 13.4%. So whether it's split Congress or Republican Congress, we're looking at market history. And that's what we're really caring about from a perspective of market participants and observations in Washington. Obviously, we have our, our own personal beliefs and cares. But we're managing money on behalf of clients. And so in the context of this podcast, we're caring about making money for clients, just looking at that history. And this may not be statistically significant, but the numbers do look pretty damn good for a split Congress or a Republican Congress and maybe a split Republican Congress, Democratic president. So uh, at least there's some potential bright side to shake up in Washington. And I think that's attributable to what Fisher said, which is markets love falling uncertainty and gridlock because nothing gets done 
And that's a, generally a positive. Right. Markets don't like surprises. Like, for example, you, we all saw that in March of 2020 when the world was coming to an end and, the, and stock prices were falling off a cliff because there was so much uncertainty. There is greater, historically greater certainty, which markets like when there is political gridlock and there's less likely to be major policy changes that could affect stock prices or taxes or whatever. And so, yes, markets love gridlock. And so it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. But like I said, in like that particular article pointed out, even in the case historically, when there's been a very popular president, they tend to lose seats in the House historically. And when you have a president who is less popular, that trend accelerates. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Presidents can gain popularity all the time and and the margins are so narrow. So it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out in November. Yeah, I think a lot of that unpopularity is driven from, I think COVID is obviously the biggest contributor because part of the pitch that Biden and Harris had was to stop COVID in its tracks and lay out a plan to do so. And it just turns out, nobody really knew at the time, but it turns out that you can't really stop COVID and it's it's continuing to morph and and uh, mutate and other variants. And so that's just a, an acceptance of reality and nothing political. I think the other thing is inflation. I mean, we're talking to people every single day about inflation and the impact of inflation on on livelihood, on portfolios, on what we're seeing the first two weeks of this year, on markets, on interest rates, on expectations of Federal Reserve rate hikes and all of the above. And I think that leads to unpopularity. And there's there's a lot of you know, potential, at least, to see in the numbers that inflation tempers by the time midterms come around. I think Biden came out today and talked about the major contributor to inflation being supply chain issues, which I think is right. I mean, I think there's a lot of other things, but it's definitely a major one. And that seems, at least to me, that it would be working itself out or in the process of working itself out by the time election season comes around. So maybe that unpopularity turns. Yeah, that all remains to be seen. I think inflation is really the thing that people, is reduction in popularity. That's essentially a, a tax that people see every time they make a purchase. And so I think that's just like a constant reinforcement of how things are relative to what they were. And who knows whose problem that is. It, and that's a very dynamic issue. And it could be resulting from policies that were put into place by the prior administration. This current administration, a combination thereof, along with a bunch of other factors like the fact that there's zero COVID policies in China. So whenever they have a case, they shut down manufacturing or shipping or whatever, and that all contributes to supply chain. And there's also a lot of money in people's pockets because of policies from the Trump and Biden administrations. And so these are all working in tandem. What do they say? The president takes too much credit when things are going well and gets too much credit when things are going poorly. And I think that's probably playing out right now. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I mean, speaking of things going poorly, we're sort of a front row seat to that in New Orleans. And for those in New Orleans that are listening, uh, there's a major issue crime-wise going on here. For those that are not, not from New Orleans, you can just uh, put earmuffs on for a while and please come visit. But uptown where both Greg and I live, uh, there's what, four carjackings in a four block radius and four hours on a Saturday. In broad daylight. In broad daylight and armed. You know, some people we know, kids in the back of the car, and people are fed up with the city and, and not just the crime, but a whole lot of other things going on here. 
to the point where people are, were afraid that, you know, long time residents of here, visitors of here, transients are not going to stick around and it's pretty poor. Yeah. Living here in the last year has not been that pleasant. Really, basically since COVID, the city's always had these problems for anybody that is familiar with it. Crime, uh, storms, the summers are difficult, et cetera. Living here is otherwise, there's a lot of positives in terms of culture and restaurants and architecture, music and festivals and Mardi Gras. And with COVID, it's been a kind of a dearth of the positives in New Orleans. And so a lot of the negative aspects exist, but with that, a lot of the positives. In terms of the crime problem, the statistics bear themselves out pretty evidently. Over the last couple of years, the percentage of residents in New Orleans who feel safe is like falling off a cliff, basically. And it's really a sad state of affairs because it is such a wonderful city. And I hope that something changes, but I can't blame people. You and I have a family relationship here and our business is here. But I can imagine if somebody had no connection to here, having to deal with a lot of these issues. Like, for example, we had to deal with two major hurricanes in the last two years. And if you add on all this other stuff with regards to crime, and it gets to the point of where you start to look at your other options. Yeah. I think another thing here too, I actually read Indomitian Sue, who's a defensive tackle for, the, I think, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is also just a very prolific writer on, it does a lot of personal investing and writing and tries to apply personal financial you know, rules of thumb to other players in his space as an educator. And he wrote something that I thought was really interesting and maybe relevant to New Orleans specifically. And he talks about the hospitality industry, the effect on the hospitality industry as a whole, as a result of COVID. And we know that New Orleans is basically a hospitality town. I mean, everything is run on tourism and restaurants and events and festivals and conferences and et cetera. Name your event or festival or conference and New Orleans is at the top of the list where people are traveling to. 42% of independent restaurants who didn't get government relief are in danger of filing for bankruptcy. 20% are in danger of going bankrupt for those that did file for government relief. You know, to stay alive, people are having to sell their homes, defer education, take on enormous personal debt. What's driving this? Well, operating hours are being severely affected by new variants of COVID. Fewer operating hours means less revenue. Customer confusion, which is, I'm seeing that. I don't know when places are open or closed or whenever. Lower profits. Sales have been impacted dramatically by in restaurants. 91% of restaurants are reporting difficulty hiring. So even as they're coming back online, it's hard to find people. 89% reported raising prices because of inflation. 42% uh, of restaurants reported removing all seating indoors and outdoors. New Orleans is a restaurant town. And the biggest impact from COVID has been hospitality and restaurant businesses. And so you can see that that's, I mean, that's just a ripple effect for people just being down and hurting here and, and just general sentiment around the city. And then, you know, that can bleed to, you know, I'm not going to blame crime on the restaurant industry, but just as we're having major economic issues here as a whole, and that that's definitely attributable to you know, a rising crime if people feel like they don't have any, any other way out. Right. And if you think about it from the perspective of the city's primary tourist engine, the French Quarter, 
I don't know a whole lot of people. I, for one, have probably only been to the French Quarter like once in the last six to 12 months. And that is something that's totally abnormal. There's a lot of fantastic restaurants down there. There's a lot of tourist traps as well, too. But it's just a, it's a matter of safety. It's gotten to the point now where you see on a pretty regular basis that there's like assaults or shootings or whatever that occur down there seemingly on like a weekly or bi-weekly basis you'll see something and that was totally abnormal the french quarter the sort of impression about the french quarter was that that was like the golden jewel that you could get yourself into trouble if you went like north of the french quarter or whatever but nowadays it is gotten to be kind of a dangerous area and that's sad because that's really where a lot of people from out of town typically go and presumably trying to avoid right now yeah and i think it you know it has a lot to do with also the lack of you know law enforcement i think we're down to like 60 percent of law enforcement officers that we had pre-covid you know it's changes in the prosecutorial process uh, where a lot of people that you know, may have previously been held and then tried for crime and specifically violent crime are not anymore and being released back onto the streets so there's encouragement around continuing to do violent acts if you're not going to get prosecuted for it and, and if you don't have the capacity to investigate because you don't have the staff. And so I think that's happening in a lot of places, not just New Orleans, which is a lot of, I think, a lot of the reason why you're seeing these, you know, an exodus to other parts of the country that are either more suburban and feel and geography and or, you know, or have the ability and capability of, of handling crime, which we haven't had that ability here. Right. So I hope it serves as a catalyst to change the trend that's occurring here, but I just don't see it. But I will always love New Orleans, but and I hope that there's something that changes because the way that we're, the direction we're heading right now is not positive. Well, you know what is at least encouraging is we've been called on, and this is investment related, but we've been called on by a lot of out-of-town people that are in the development space, whether it's hotels or condos or any sort of new high-end luxury real estate development looking for deals in new orleans we were called on by a group that's looking at complete redevelopment in the central business district in new orleans that if it gets accomplished would be an amazing piece for the city there's stuff going on we saw somebody who was under contract on a hotel in the french quarter that would be a full revamp and to something that's more luxury. We had the development of the Four Seasons residences and hotel, which is completely redeveloped the very end of Canal and Poitier Street. So there is out-of-town interest in making New Orleans great. And anytime we get called on by somebody to look at a deal, our first thought is, oh, man, why are you looking at New Orleans? But other people seem to think that it's got a... It's a deep value. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the bet, right, is that New Orleans will come back and we hope they're right and we hope they do all these developments. Um, but we always tell them is I think we're just a little too close to what's going on here to make commitments to major deals down in New Orleans. But those, that's where the money's made. Right, exactly. So I hope that they're successful. So it will be interesting to see how that all develops, no pun intended. And it's interesting, there is a lot of investment that's happening in the areas that are kind of distressed right now, specifically the French Quarter. And if the city gets its act together, then it, there could be a lot of potential for good returns for those people. Yeah. So I want to take a moment to talk about the podcast generally and, and the framework that we're going to have going forward, because starting next week and then, you know, basically for the next three weeks, 
uh, and hoping beyond that, we're going to be joined by some really exciting guests that we've lined up. And our thoughts around this podcast uh, originally were for people to get a better understanding of how you know us as people and how we think and how we think about markets and what's going on and you know basically current events in New Orleans and around the country and world, but also to hear from some of the brightest minds in specific areas, whether it's in economics or in market history or in other economies. Uh, and we have somebody that's interesting lined up from Argentina to talk about what's going on down there. But what we are trying to deliver is just a message and product to people that are interested in listening around us as people and how we view the world from a market perspective and investment perspective. But also our goal is to bring on really interesting people to talk about their perspectives as well. And we'll see that next week with our first guest. So we hope you join and listen to that. Yep. Thank you guys very much for listening. As always, please share with your friends. This is Lanyap Podcast, signing out. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.